Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Sarah Kent. Sarah was named Chief Executive Officer of Shelter Animals Count in September of 2017. She's the first CEO and paid staff member leading Shelter Animals Count's evolution from a collaborative project to an independent organization with a strong focus on shelter engagement and industry presence. Before joining Shelter Animals Count, Sarah spent over 17 years with PetFinder.com as one of the adoption site's first employees. As the Director of Shelter Outreach for PetFinder, Sarah and her team managed relationships with 14,000 animal adoption organizations. She led the creation of PetFinder Pro, the professional side of PetFinder, dedicated to providing tools and resources to animal shelters and rescue groups. During her tenure at PetFinder, Sarah visited hundreds of shelters nationwide and was a frequent presenter at national and regional animal welfare conferences. Sarah serves as a board member for the Animal Welfare Federation of New Jersey, a statewide collection of professional animal welfare advocates working together to improve the lives of animals. She is the founder of Fiverr Cats, an online resource dedicated to community cats and FIV-positive cats. Sarah lives in Montclair, New Jersey with her husband, a stepdaughter in college, and several adopted pets, including two mixed-breed dogs, three house cats, and a community cat named Lana. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So Sarah has been a past guest on the Community Cats podcast when she was wearing her pet finder hat. So folks are interested in finding out more about her love and history and passion around cats. You can feel free to tune into that past episode. But just for the folks that are maybe new to the podcast, Sarah, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a a quick history on how you got started and, and how did you develop a passion for cats? I've really spent my whole career in in animal welfare. Um, I grew up with cats and I started volunteering at my local animal shelter when I was 12 over the summer and uh, then went on to work in a local veterinary hospital throughout high school and then later went on to become one of the the first few employees to join PetFinder when it was starting out. uh, I've really always had a a passion for cats and dogs as well, probably a little bit more of a cat lady (laughs) and uh, particularly have a passion around the, the older cats, the special needs cats and the FIV positive cats. Those are always the ones that tend to steal my heart. I agree with you 100%. I always uh, wanted to foster the, the kitties that were 10 years and up that would be surrendered to the shelter. And I currently live with two FIV positive kitties right now at my house. So uh, they're very uh, near and dear to, I think, many, many folks' hearts. So I have a feeling we're going to talk a lot today about numbers. Can you first share with us a little bit of information about Shelter Animals Count? What is it all about? What's the goal and the mission of the organization? Shelter Animals Count started uh, really as a, a concept back in 2011, and all of these national uh, leaders in animal welfare got together, and they all had the same challenge, which is really trying to put some accurate numbers behind how many animals are coming into shelters and how many animals are coming 
shelters. And there had been a lot of estimates, you know, that people have put together and shared over the years and um, extrapolations from what data was available. But there really had never been a full database that sole purpose was to collect shelter data. And, you know, in my previous role at Petfinder, um, I can't tell you how many times I was asked, it was probably almost every week that someone would ask how many pets are coming into shelters and never felt confident in giving the answer because it was all just estimates. And so the national leaders got together and they created this collaborative project, which is Shelter Animals Count. And the mission is really just to create, share, and steward the national database of sheltered animals that provides facts and enables insights. So they use a tool called the basic data matrix, and it is just that, it's basic data, the intakes and the outcomes. And the thought behind the basic data matrix is that it's the most basic level of data that any organization of any size who's taking in and sending out animals should be collecting. And so with that as the basis, they built the database um, that is Shelter Animals Count today in uh, 2014, 2015, and then that was launched in 2016. And so it's been around for a couple of years now, and it's really the, the first organization, the first project, and the first tool that sole purpose is to collect and share this national shelter data. Um, and so we've got shelters all across the country, as well as rescue organizations who've registered and they input their data on a monthly basis. And then we're able to share that out and be able to understand what's happening across the country, regionally, locally, and look at that at all different levels. Fantastic. And it looks like on your website, you have almost 5,000 participating shelters. We do. So we have over 5,000 organizations that have registered to participate. Uh, of those who've actively contributed any sort of data over the last two years, there's about 3,200 of those organizations. So not everyone keeps up with the data after they join. Of course, that's what we're always encouraging is to come in and share your data on a monthly basis. But we are getting active data contributions from over 3,000 organizations. And that's what you can see on the data dashboards that are on the Shelter Animals Count website. So I'm going to jump right into it because I'm just so excited. So you had put together uh, for our talk today some information on 2017. And so I was just wondering if you might be willing to sort of take a deep dive in some of the metrics that you wanted to share with our listeners. Absolutely. So um, I'll I'll give credit where credit is due. And our data manager, Marie Abadanza, <laughs> is wonderful. And she pulled all this data together for us. And um, she's really the brains behind a lot of the information that you see on Shelter Animals Count. And so um, she specifically pulled some cat data for us so that we could take a look at that. And, you know, I think that the interesting thing when we start to look at this data is there doesn't tend to be a lot of surprises, but that's a good thing. Um, what we can do is use that data to kind of verify all of the assumptions that we often tend to make in this field. For example, we see the highest intakes coming in in the south, the lowest intakes coming in in the northeast, Probably not a big surprise to you or to anyone who might be listening, because that's sort of expected based on the climate and what we've been seeing over the past couple of years. And then looking specifically at how those cats are coming into shelters. So in 2017, 55% uh, of cats that came into shelters were strays. 25% of cats who came into shelters were relinquished by their owners. 
2% came in as owner-intended euthanasias, meaning that that was a service the shelter was providing in their community. 13% were transferred in for other agencies, and we're actually seeing that number go up in 2018 as more shelters are able to take in more cats. And then 5% came in from other means. Comparing that to 2018, 50, or at least the data we have so far in 2018, which takes us through the end of November, uh, 53% of those cats came in as strays. 25% were relinquished by their owners, so that stayed steady. 2% were owner-intended euthanasia, which also stayed steady. We saw transfers go up a percent from 13% in 2017 to 14% in 2018, and then 6% came in um, in other means. That transfer number is is an interesting one, and, and I also find it interesting that the uh, owner surrender rate is basically flat as opportunities, as the supply goes down of cats within the community, one would think that owners have a easier chance of finding placement through their friends and family networks and don't need to use the resources of the shelters. But at this point in time, just with a sample of two years, it sounds like it's pretty much flatlined. It has. And, you know, not to make too many assumptions from that, you know, what we have heard from shelters who are seeing their intakes either hold steady or, or even increase is that I think the perceptions of shelters are also changing. And so people who may have been more hesitant to bring their pets into a shelter when they weren't sure what else to do, you know, their fears have gone away. And so they're a lot more comfortable coming into the shelter and using that as a community resource. That's a very good point. I'll just add that the, the transfers in and um, where we are seeing that is we're seeing that the West and the South are the highest when it comes to transfers in. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're coming from multiple states away. Like when you often think of a traditional transport as going from one region to another and may simply be moving pets from one overcrowded shelter in one region to another less overcrowded shelter in the same region. So that is telling me that there are pockets within the South, in the areas in where you would say your hot zones would be. There are definitely some pockets there. I think of like Jacksonville, Florida as a pocket that may be able to do more transfers in because of some of the programs that they've had over the years. And we don't at this time uh, delineate between those in-state transfers versus out-of-state transfers, but that's something that we are thinking about as a future data point, because I think that would give us a lot deeper information and perhaps a little bit more useful information for those transfers. Yeah, I think that would be very interesting to find out more about. And I think it's very good if shelters are networking with each other more locally to be able to move the cats around that need extra resources. That makes a lot of sense. And it's much better than going up to New Jersey, put it that way. And that's one of the worries that the shelters, I would say, in New England have, because in general, many facilities up there can take transfers in and it's not happening to a huge rate in state because everybody is able to handle their capacity. So what happens when the states can handle their own transfers around? And I, we had talked a little bit before we hit the record button about a situation in Virginia where they're really working hard using dubert.com technology to really ensure that they are moving animals around within the state before looking outside of the state to make sure that they can really use their local resources to the fullest extent possible. 
And um, so then what happens when you do have like a Northeast region that some would say are is pretty fully very low population level, what happens then? But that's, that's a bigger conversation for down the road, but it is a conversation that is happening. It is. And I think, you know, the exciting thing there is seeing that collaboration within a state. And I think that that's really, really important to be able to kind of share the resources as much as possible at that local level before starting to look out at, at other regions. Yeah, and I'll credit Susan Hauser, her blog out the front door was the person who wrote recently about the work that's happening in Virginia. So I'm going to put a shout out and a thank you to Susan for bringing that to everybody's attention. And and it's a great blog if if folks haven't, haven't checked that out. Today's episode is sponsored by Space Kitty Express, your one stop shop for exotic cat drugs. Everyone's heard of catnip, but what about valerian root, tatarian honeysuckle, or silver vine? Space Kitty Express specializes in offering these hard-to-find catnip alternatives, both in their herbal form and stuffed into a variety of reusable toys. Their herbs are 100% pure, not like those quote-unquote catnip blends you might find in a pet store. Their tartarian honeysuckle wood is cut fresh and kept frozen to lock in its citrusy scent. Their silver vine exudes a mintiness that tingles the nostrils. Their organic valerian root is so musky that they've had to blend it with organic lemongrass so that human noses can tolerate it. Cats can definitely tell the difference between these quality herbs and that stale catnip from the big box store. Visit SpaceKittyExpress.com and watch videos from satisfied feline customers. Use coupon code COMMUNITYCATS, all one word, at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase. That's SpaceKittyExpress.com with coupon code COMMUNITYCATS. Doesn't your cat deserve the best? Spoil them today at SpaceKittyExpress.com. <coughs> ProVetLogic, based in Scottsboro, Alabama, provides educational support and product solutions to professional pet care providers and pet parents throughout the country. As a licensed veterinary medical continuing education provider, ProVetLogic provides a variety of educational tools designed to help cat care providers create a cleaner and safer environment for both the cats in their care and the care providers. To learn more about ProVetLogic, please visit www.provetlogic.com or call 800-869-4789. So from all of this data, you know, we've now all heard some of the some of the information that you have. Are there other data points that you look at or is is this the the bulk? I mean, is your objective is to get the basic numbers by as many groups as possible or are there other components that you're looking at or is this this pretty much the focus at this point in time? Really, the focus is those basic numbers, really just gathering all of the intake information and the outcome information. And, you know, we very intentionally stop short of doing a lot of analysis or hypothesis or uh, rate calculations or anything like that when it comes to the data. Our role is really to collect, convene, and present the data so that it's out there and we don't intentionally put a ton of context behind that data because we know every shelter operates operates a little bit differently. We also put some notes on our website about the limitations of that data, both the data set itself and that this is the self-reported data that has come into us. This does not represent every shelter across the country. We hope someday that it does and that every shelter across the country is participating in Shelter Animals Count and transparently sharing their data. But right now, the data that we have is the data that we have. And we also know that just looking at that basic data of the intakes and the outcome of cats and dogs 
doesn't represent the full spectrum of the work that any organization does. They often are taking in other species beyond cats and dogs that we don't currently collect and doing a lot of work uh, with services in their communities, with pet food pantries and pet retention programs, TNR, um, you know, all of these other data points that we don't currently collect, but really help to round out kind of the full spectrum of work of an organization. So it's, you know, the, the data set itself is limited at the moment, but again, Again, our goal is really to have a standard data set that every organization can follow. Uh, there's not a lot of nuance to the basic data matrix. You know, there's not a lot of conditions and other factors to look at. It, it's really quite basic. Um, so the first hurdle is really just getting all shelters to use that to collect and report their data. And then it's available for everyone to see on the website. So if a shelter is you know, looking to start a transfer program, either as a uh, an origin shelter or a destination shelter, it can help them to go through the dashboards that are available on the site and, you know, see who's transferring animals and reach out to those organizations to start making some connections. Yeah, that makes sense. And so if I were an organization that doesn't have a shelter and is pretty much focused on trap, neuter, return, do a little foster care, but usually it's just foster holding on until we can transfer into another organization. Is there a role for them in the data collection and or, you know, how would this data be able to help them with their cause in their local community? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So we don't currently collect any TNR data. So if it's an organization that's fully focused on trap, neuter, return, they would not qualify to register on shelter animals count. However, they can certainly use it to look for other organizations in their area who they might be able to partner with for services. Um, while we don't track TNR data, we do track return to field data. And really the distinction there is that, is this cat counting as an intake for that particular organization or facility? And for the most part, you know, with TNR cats, they kind of bypass the intake process. They go right to the clinic and then back out. So they don't count as an intake. And so they're kind of outside of this basic data matrix collection. But if they do come into the shelter and and they're going to go back out to the field, they do count as an actual intake for that organization, then that's where they would add that information under the return to field section of the basic data matrix. So if you were to do uh, an analysis of the organizations that have the highest number of return to field cats, I, I just wonder what that list would look like. Yeah, I'd have to look at the actual organizations um, who've submitted that data. I can see just looking at the regional breakdown that the highest RTF numbers are coming out of the South, which I probably, that's not a surprise right. to anybody, <laughs> uh, both in, in 2017 and so far in 2018, they far surpass any other region of the country with, with return to field. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And the, the, my other little bee in the bonnet is offering low cost spay neuter assistance for owned cats and wondering how return to field and that layer up with each other because in my community cat pyramid that I created I really feel like that's the bedrock for success in uh, reducing cat overpopulation numbers is really getting that Adam and Eve spayed and neutered before they're either potentially abandoned or not abandoned because they've had access to some health care that will prevent them from being a nuisance in the household and having kittens 
and all that kind of stuff. And I, I always wonder how return to field as well as a very aggressive low cost spay neuter program for owned cats, how that speeds up the process of cat overpopulation reduction. Yeah, the the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement just recently posted a really great, very in-depth study that they did in the field that captures a lot deeper information about those services and, you know, who's got a clinic and at what capacity. Um, so I definitely encourage you to, to check that out. It's a really robust survey of the industry. I think they plan to do it every other year moving forward. That's great. That's great. I'll definitely go check it out in a great organization. And we've had um, Jim Tedford on uh, the podcast a couple of times. And so he's retraining us on how to say the name of the organization and everything. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I congratulate you on that one. It it took some practice. Yes. (laughs) Rebranding an organization is, uh, is a tough practice. That's for sure. So you are also, you are involved at the state level too. You're involved with an organization in New Jersey, um, the Animal Welfare Federation. So I would assume that you have some of the kinds of conversations in the room. What are the kinds of conversations that you that you have within this group? Yes, yeah, so we, we definitely talk about data with the Animal Welfare Federation of New Jersey. And, and New Jersey is an interesting state because it, it has state level data collection from the state. It's not mandatory, but it's been around for so long that the majority of, of shelters and a lot of the rescues in the, the state are contributing their data to the, the state. Um, and then they report it out just in aggregate, I think every year, maybe every other year. Um, a lot of the conversations we've been having at our state fed are around legislation. There's been a lot of action in New Jersey, and we're lucky enough to have Brian Hackett from HSUS serve on our, he's the New Jersey state representative for HSUS, and he's also a board member and our treasurer for the Animal Welfare Federation of New Jersey and a wealth of knowledge when it comes to to legislation. And so um, there's been a lot of activity around the the state with some new uh, laws on anti-tethering and laws of performance animals, so to speak. And just so I can't remember the town now, because it was a a small town in New Jersey, they just passed some new um, community cat legislation to allow for TNR to take place. So we're pretty lucky in New Jersey that it's a fairly animal welfare friendly state from a legislative perspective. Um, and then every month when our federation meets, Brian gives us a great update on kind of what's happening and what's in the works and what's coming next. Uh, it's great to have your um, source very, very close by. Uh, anything with regards to cats and predation in New Jersey? Anything going on with that topic that you know of? Not that I know of, but um, he's much more the the legislative expert than I am. Yeah. Um, I know it's it's often a controversial issue, as it is everywhere. Um, but nothing comes to mind immediately. I'd have to go and do a little bit of research to see if there's anything pending um, at the moment. But I know it's often a hot topic um, around, uh, particularly cats and birds. Most definitely. And I, I just asked that question because there's usually one community that's having a, a problem, but it sounds like it's been good in general, since you've been in the business for, you know, approximately 20 years, what sort of changes have you seen for community cats over that period of time? And, and what do you think life will be like for community cats over the next 10 years or so? I've seen a lot more, uh, 
comfort and acceptance and awareness of community cats feels like even 10 years ago people didn't even notice cats unless they were you know a true a true cat person uh the cats tended to just kind of be in the the shadows and people didn't notice them and i don't know if it's their growing population or uh people are just more aware of the animals around them but there seems to be just a lot more attention sometimes negatively but i find more often at least in my area positively around community cats. And we have some great organizations locally here who are focused fully on community cats. And it's been really, you know, aside from the occasional letter to the editor in the paper, it's been really well received. And I feel like there's so much more research and data coming out about community cats that can be really helpful on what solutions work. Um, I'm really excited about this DC Cat Count project that's happening to try to get some more figures about, you know, that while it's just a, a particular area, I think being able to have a dedicated effort to really understand how many cats are there um, from from every different you know possible angle of cats who are in shelters and cats who are out on the streets and cats who are in homes to be able to really have an understanding of the number of cats out there. I think that's going to be so important to start to measure success and you know even in my own um, very small cat colony that I've been maintaining for about 10 years. You know, we've, I feel like I need to knock on wood, but we've certainly seen that the number of cats continue to decline year over year. Um, We'll get friendlies who are dumped from people who are moving out of apartments. But other than that, you know, the the true community cats who've been here and were part of the start of the colony, they did an incredible, successful TNR effort about 13 years ago. And it's so evident that it worked. There's been not very many new arrivals rivals other than those those few friendlies. There's not been any litters of kittens. It's just one small little microcosm of the larger community cat issue, but been really interesting to see how well it works when it's done. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. When it when it's done well that way. You know, if you are only getting fifty percent of the cats spayed or neutered and you call that a managed colony, that's kind of giving the practice a bad name because it's not going to work out very well if you only get 50% of the colony spayed or neutered. And I know that's a conversation a lot of people are always asking, what is the percentage that will make a difference? I I guess I'm very old school and I still believe that we should strive for 100% sterilization and also have some element of management on the colony just to be able to handle their welfare, that welfare part of community cats. And that's something that doesn't end after you've gotten them spayed or neutered. That's my my little soapbox for the moment on that issue. But I think you'll have a a greater success if you strive for maybe something smaller, but yet get to 100% or as close as you can um, to 100% for sterilization rate for the cats. Absolutely. Yeah. When when we first moved into this house, in fact, it was a foreclosure that we purchased and the grass was waist high. And I pulled up in the driveway with my realtor. I saw these two little cat faces peeking out at me. And I was like, oh, clearly this is my house. Um, and uh, and then after I moved in and they, they got a little bit closer, I was like, uh, you know, here I expected I was going to have my work cut out for me and have to do a lot of trapping. And they showed up ear tipped. And it was, you know, kind of walking into this already set cat colony and then taking on the effort to just 
keep that up. And any new cat who's arriving gets trapped and neutered and put back out there or rehomed if, if it was a friendly cat. And it's really made a big difference in the area. I mean, just in the 10 years I've been here, I can see a difference in the cat population. You know, one of the other things that's been really fun to watch, you know, one of our big projects at Fiber Cats is these cat shelter plans that my husband put together a few years back and really did it just for us, you know, just because he, he built me some cat shelters for Christmas <laughs> present one year. And we kept getting all these comments on them when I would post pictures of them. So I was like, you know, let's just drop the plans and put them out there. And uh, people all over the world have built cat shelters shelters from these plans and they send us the photos and it's so incredible to see people put that time and that effort behind helping cats and the pride behind mm-hmm. being able to really make a difference for these cats and creating these managed colonies and you know taking photos of it and putting it out there on you know Instagram and Facebook and being able to share what they're doing and i think that type of attention is so important so that people who you know may have seen a cat in their area but didn't know what to do and so they just kept walking, maybe take a second look and start to, to do some work right in their own backyard. And I think if, if everyone does that work in their own backyard, it'll make a really big difference for cats. One of the interesting questions that I get time and time again by other organizations when I've talked about shelter animals count, and I'm sort of cycling back into this question, is how does this or is this data collection claiming or evaluating a performance of a shelter for the good or the bad. Uh, I get this question from uh, community cat groups oftentimes because, you know, Shelter Animals Counts, the data is not addressing the condition of cats in the community. It's only evaluating or representing data from within the shelter. I believe I know the answer to this question, but I thought with you as the CEO, I thought I would pose this question to you as to, is this data being used as sort of an evaluation tool or how, how is it used to evaluate your overall animal welfare community? So we don't, at Shelter Animals Count, we don't do a lot of that evaluation. Really, it's it's just about being able to collect the data in a standard way and then share the data in a standard way. That said, when you have the benefit of having every organization, or at least the majority of organizations within a specific community who are all collecting their data in that standard way and sharing that publicly as well as with their the other organizations, you can really start to get a sense of how that whole community is working with their animals um, and how each of those different organizations within that community can better support each other, which we think is a really, really big benefit of being able to be transparent with your data and create that collaborative environment where you can work with others. Yes, it could lead to great transport relationships far away, but can also lead to some really great local relationships with your whole community and understand where your gaps are. And, you know, if there's one shelter that's you know, suddenly seeing a lot more cats or dogs coming in in a particular month that gives the other organizations a heads up that maybe they need to come in and and help out and be able to take some of those animals from an overcrowded shelter into their own organizations um, or provide support in some other way. So we don't, we're not there to measure performance or say, you know, what's good, bad, or otherwise. We know there's always more to the story. Um, We know that the, the intake and outcome is not representative of all the work an organization is doing. 
doing, but we think it can give at least the start of some good insight into, you know, where the majority of animals are coming in and where resources might need to be dedicated. And we have a lot of funders who use that data and use the database to see, you know, where they can help direct their efforts so that they can make the biggest impact possible. I know that in areas where the cat population is declining, there's a concern that euthanasia rates are going to go up because of who's walking through the door. You're going to get the older, more compromised cats that need a lot of assistance, or it may even be not possible to assist them and and you may have to euthanize them. And so, you know, we may be looking at a world where the data may be altering behaviors if it becomes that important that your benchmark stays at a certain level. It is a concern that there might be altering behaviors in the sheltering world so that then they're not going below a certain metric level with regards to euthanasia or some other things. Or those levels will need to be adjusted over time as you see trend lines change. And so I think that's a concern that is out there, worry about as I just said about the colony, you know, getting 80% spayed or neutered and you'll be successful. It's like always having this like magical number, but that magical number is not telling the whole story about that community. So I, I would say ev- anybody dealing with data, and I love data, I do, I love numbers, but everybody needs to be very careful to always want to take a deeper dive if you're dealing in an intimate situation, if it's a shelter in your own backyard, reporting certain numbers don't just evaluate that shelter based on those numbers, but to get to know the shelter, to ask questions if you're really curious and you want to find out more before making sort of public accusations about anything. Absolutely. That's super important. And we hate to see anybody vilified for their numbers, especially when they've they've chosen to, to share that information transparently. And, you know, there's there's very few organizations out there that don't have, you know, some needs where um, they could use more resources. So uh, we really hate to see any organization disparaged for their numbers. And it doesn't tell the full picture. You know, data can tell you that, yeah, there's probably a story here as to why the numbers are the way they are, but it doesn't tell you that whole story. And that's where transparency is just so important. And I think the first step of transparency is putting your numbers out there. And then the second step of transparency is really telling your organization's story. You know, who are you seeing coming through your doors? You know, what's happening in your community? Where can you use community support and where can you use those resources? Um, Being able to leverage the data to be able to add to that story, but being able to, to tell your story for your community. And that tends to be really well received too, when you're able to, to be that transparent and to talk about the challenges that your shelter is facing. And you know, with measures of success, just just like any other measures of success in in any other field, they need to be looked at and and readdressed regularly. And you know what made sense as a measure of success at one point in time, may not make sense in the future. If there's an organization that is not signed up for Shelter Animals Count, and they were interested in doing this, but they really wanted to make sure that they were going to be able to stick with it, it sounds like, you know, some organizations can't continue with the reporting and um, uh, its data collection is, I know, very, very tough for a lot of organizations, especially some smaller ones that might not be Uh, hooked into special software and that kind of thing. What would you, like, what's the sort of animal, uh, shelter animals counts, like 101, what would be their responsibilities? So what we ask is that shelters contribute their intake and 
outcome data on a monthly basis. We know not everyone can do that every month. And so we also do some promotions a couple of times a year called data drives. And during those period of time, anyone who's completed their most recent data set can get entered to win from a, a prize drawing of some grant money that we have available. Um, we've got one coming up in January. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so the, the, the lift as far as contributing the data into shelter animals count is really light. And we did a survey of our participants last year right around this time, and they said it takes them less than 15 minutes a month. Um, we also found out through that survey that a very large number of organizations, particularly rescue organizations, tend to do everything either pen and paper or using Excel. They don't have access to the, the shelter software providers, as, as you mentioned. Um, and so for them, it can be a little bit more challenging because they have to do some manual calculations often to be able to pull the numbers. Um, but then it's a really easy grid that they fill out manually on, on shelter animals count every month. For the organizations that do have shelter software, uh, we recently released a new import system where they can pull a, a CSV style report out of their shelter software provider, log into their shelter animals count uh, account, and then just click import, and it maps all of their data from their shelter software file into shelter animals count. So it removes all of that manual data entry um, month over month, and that can be done on a monthly basis, or those reports can be used to do a batch update of, of even an entire year or more of data. Um, so we try to encourage that monthly data collection, and we send monthly uh, reminders out to everyone to encourage them to submit their data. Um, but if you miss a month, it's not the end of the world. You can just go back in and add that data once you have it available. So it's, it's a pretty light administrative effort. We're always looking for ways to make it even lighter. Um, and uh, and try to make sure that that isn't a barrier or a burden for any of the organizations. And then the the flip side of that is, you know, to take take a couple minutes every month and and do that data entry and and contribute your data to the national database. But then also take a little bit of time every month to really look through the data, not only your own data, but looking at the data dashboards and seeing what's happening in your community, in your state, and even across the whole country. There's some really helpful tools in those interactive dashboards where you can you know compare yourself to the state and national average. You can look to see summary level data. Uh, you can even layer in some human demographic information that we've pulled from census data. So you can really have a good sense of kind of not just what's happening with the animals in your area, but also the people in your area. So it could be a great tool, especially if you're thinking about entering into writing any grant applications and that kind of thing, too. Absolutely. We highly encourage organizations who are doing any sort of grant applications or uh, reporting to use the data. It's That's exactly what it's there for, and it could be really beneficial. Uh, grantors are always looking for data in those grant applications, so it's there for that purpose. Yeah, and I've certainly run around and tried to capture information at the last minute while trying to get some grant applications in. So if the, the easier, the better for, for being able to get those accomplished. And, and uh, I'm sure that the, uh, the recipients of the grant applications are pleased with all the detailed information too. So um, one last question with regards to organizations that are interested in uh, participating, the ones that might be laggards, that might have let their information lapse, are you forgiving? 
Absolutely. You can come back anytime. And uh, we just brought on a few months ago an, an outreach manager, Alex Murinchek. So you might be hearing from her if you're one of those organizations uh, where we're trying to reach back out to folks. We find that often the biggest challenge is just turnover within the organizations and lost logins and passwords and all of that fun stuff that kind of uh, is is part of running any sort of <laughs> website. Um, so usually it's just, you know, the the data management has changed hands and one person uh, didn't pass that information along to the next. So people are welcome back at any time. Um, we also really encourage groups who have it available to go back and backfill historic data. We can have data input back to 2011. So it's certainly not a requirement, but if that's available, it's really helpful for us to be able to round out that database and be able to have a better sense of kind of what's been happening over the past few years, um, as well as keeping up with data in the future. Excellent. Folks are interested in signing up or have more questions about the program. How would they do that? Uh, they can go to shelteranimalscount.org and click the register link up towards the top. If there's any questions or you can't find it, you can reach out to us directly at info at shelteranimalscount.org. Excellent. Sarah, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I would say for anyone who's with a shelter or rescue, please join Shelter Animals Count and contribute your data if you aren't already doing so. Uh, we also have a couple of really exciting new tools planned for 2019, including some data visualization tools for your individual shelter. So check back and, and see when that's coming live in 2019. And for anyone who's just interested in data, take a look at the shelteranimalscount.org website and go to the explore the data section. You can use the interactive dashboards and see all the available data that we've collected in the national database. Excellent. Well, Sarah, thank you again so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And I hope we'll have you on in the future, maybe when we've got 2018 under wraps. That sounds great. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 